This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Tonight, thousands of new jobs created last month, but a lot of young women still say they're not getting enough work. We'll look at how insecure work and underemployment cause stress and anxiety. The hours were very random. Honestly, like just the the stress and anxiety of it all, like in terms of like depression, anxiety, stress. Not enough hours. Yeah, it does stress me out because I have a three-year-old son. Would you say it affects you mentally, your mental health at all? Yeah, it does. And a flagship of the Russian Navy is seriously damaged in the Black Sea. It's a big boost for the Ukrainian military ahead of a new Russian campaign. Well, today's jobless rate announcement was highly anticipated, but it wasn't in the headline-grabbing 3% range, as some had predicted. Unemployment remains at 4% for March, though nearly 18,000 jobs were created. Analysts say the figures reflect a strong economy, but not all workers and industries are doing well. John Daly reports. Demand for healthcare is surging. And Griffith-based nurse and New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association Secretary Christy Wilson says the need for staff has never been higher. There is a ton of vacancies. So the skilled nursing workforce, um, ICU nurses, emergency nurses, theatre nurses, midwives, in absolute demand at the moment. And Christy Wilson says that's not necessarily a good thing. I think just at the moment, nurses are burnt out. They can't handle the increasing workload. There's no respite in sight. You know, we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. There's no magic nurses falling from the sky to take up positions. Um, So I think nurses are just just burnt out and they can't, can't continue the workloads. So they're finding jobs elsewhere. With the pandemic and an ageing population, healthcare and social assistance continues to be the biggest source of new jobs for Australians, accounting for 15% of the total workforce. Education and training and the financial sector are the other big job creators. Last month, 17,900 jobs were added to the economy, pushing the jobless rate to the lowest it's been since the 1970s. The Coalition is keen to take credit for that, but there are complex drivers behind this very low unemployment rate. The pandemic is the main one, as Comsec economist Ryan Feldsman explains. So we've had fiscal stimulus with the JobKeeper package totalling about $90 billion, and we've also had a lot of government spending on infrastructure and healthcare and the like in response to the crisis. And that's also been supported by the Reserve Bank reducing the official cash rate to a record low of 0.1%. The other thing to note as well, of course, is we've had closed international borders. So that's meant the pool or supply of labour has diminished during the pandemic. And there's been stronger demand for local workers. And we've seen job vacancies in February at record highs. Ryan Felsman says the unemployment rate luckily won't fall much lower from here. And as more skilled migrants return to Australia, the rate's actually likely to start rising again. Probably more of a story of 2023, 2024 than 2022. But of course, once that pool of labour picks up a little bit, that may lead to the unemployment rate next year or even later starting to lift a little bit. The jobless figures also shed some light on underemployment, where people aren't getting the hours they want. Labor insists it's a big problem in the economy, but generally measures of underemployment and underutilisation have dropped to 13-year lows. 
RMIT University economist Leonora Rees says it suggests those who were reporting underemployment are getting more hours instead of new jobs. So that's telling us that what's changing in the labour market at the moment is hours. And if underemployment is improving, that's telling us that it's not so much that people are getting a new job or stepping out of the workforce, but now hours are starting um, to pick up again and and matching uh, the the hours that people are hoping for. But underemployment for young people, particularly young women, is disproportionately high. Leonora Rees says that's a concern. That's still high and that's a concern because this tells us this is people who not only do they want more hours, but given that costs of living are rising at the moment, this is probably people who need more hours. So even though the overall labour market looks strong, it looks rosy, this is an age group that we should be concerned about. Jobs are growing at a faster pace than normal, with an annual 2.6% employment growth rate to March compared to the long-term average of 1.8%. As the economy reaches what economists call maximum employment, all eyes are now on wages. Leonora Rees says the latest employment figures suggest people are just working more hours instead of being paid more. At the moment, the signs from the labour market is that it's not wages that are moving, but it's more that it's hours worked that are moving, that it's people picking up more hours. They're probably receiving the same wage rate. So I think that will be the next the next uh, data release that uh, economists will be focusing their attention on. RMIT University economist Leonora Rees speaking with PM's John Daly. Well, as we just heard, thousands of new jobs have been created in the last month, but are they stable jobs that benefit workers? Employees who aren't getting enough hours or don't know how long they'll have their job make up a big section of the workforce. So what impact does this instability have on a person's mental health? Experts say stress and anxiety are common problems. As David Sparks reports. You don't have to look too far to find people who are stressed out about their jobs. Whether they don't get enough hours or fear losing work altogether, it's taking a toll. Do you ever get stressed about job insecurity? Always, especially like with everything that's going on in the world right now. I just have no idea what's going to happen. This young woman is now looking for work after losing the retail job she had at a pharmacy. And that wasn't particularly secure work either. The hours were very random. It was just, you know, whatever. It wasn't really set or anything. What do you think it does to your mental well-being when your job's not secure? Oh, wow. Um, honestly, like, just the, the stress and anxiety of it all. Like, you stress about money. Like, that's, that's a world problem, stress about money. And everything's getting so much more expensive. Do you get stressed about job insecurity? Uh, yes, I do. Um, not enough hours. And it's, yeah, it does stress me out because I have a three-year-old son right. and not making enough money. It's pretty stressful, not meeting the needs. Uh, and i got to pay for preschool. But, yeah, just not enough hours, that's what stresses me out. I don't get enough work. Would you say it affects you mentally, your mental health at all? Uh, yes, actually. Yeah, it does. The mental impact of job insecurity is a growing concern, especially given changes to the economy in recent decades. Alison Pennington is Senior Economist at the Centre for Future Work with the Australia Institute. We've been tracking the growth of insecure work, which comes in lots of different forms. It can be part-time, low hours, it could be casual, uh, insecure self-employment like gig work, temporary and contract work. And uh, we find that if you combine all of these 
trends and insecure work, they make up now around half of all jobs in Australia. So that's a, a significant erosion in job quality and uh, the experience of work in Australia, which has huge implications for the economy, for people's lives and families. And what do we know about how this insecure work affects workers' state of mind? I know you're an, an economist rather than a psychologist, but um, what do we know about how it perhaps causes anxiety in the workforce? Well, it, Australia's labour market has facilitated a position where there are millions of people who not only don't know if they're going to be having shifts and work next week, uh, but their incomes are low and they're falling in relation to people with permanent work. So, you know, studies indicate that between 15 and 45% of mental health problems experienced by people employed is attributed to their workplaces. Uh, and there's, there's a very clear, obvious correlation between mental health problems like anxiety experienced in the workplace and the instability of that employment contract. Clinical psychologist Ros Knight says insecure work is a big concern. Anecdotally, talking to my clients and observing people, I would say that insecurity makes up a huge percentage of the anxiety we see. It's not the only thing. There's lots and lots of complexities to this issue. But if anxiety is about control and perceived threat, if your job is casualised, if it's a yearly contract, then all the time there is this perceived threat that you won't be able to potentially make ends meet, that financially you might be at risk, that you can't be perhaps as honest with the workplace because you might have hours cut off. So there's a, a much heightened level of anxiety in this. And, of course, the people who have most of the insecure jobs are the youth of Australia who are prone more to being diagnosed with a mental health disorder and, therefore, they're the ones experiencing a lot of this anxiety. But I'm guessing that the people with the least money are the least likely to turn up in a psychologist's office. Is it hard to gauge how that part of the community is travelling anxiety-wise in relation to to the workplace for that reason? I think there's lots of reasons, but yes is the, is the short answer to that in that if you're working casualised shifts, so therefore you don't know exactly when you're working the next week, uh, bills are to be paid, um, there's usually a lot of other compromises you're making, then often a psychologist is a long way down the list of people that you're going to prioritise. But yes, what we can say anecdotally is we know it's out there and we assume for people at all walks of life they are experiencing a level of this. Clinical psychologist Ros Knight ending that report by David Sparks. The Prime Minister has been grilled today about his broken election promise to establish a National Integrity Commission. Campaigning in the marginal seat of Bass in Tasmania, he faced a barrage of questions about the government's failure to even introduce a bill to create a federal corruption watchdog. Labor says it shows the Prime Minister can't be trusted to deliver on his promises. Isabel has more. The marginal seat of Bass in Tasmania is hot property. Labor started its campaign there on Monday and today the Prime Minister flew in with his pitch to voters. This election is about a strong economy. But that wasn't what the press pack had in mind. Fund Integrity Commission, yeah. are you committing to it? Yeah. Is it a well, priority? you asked me about priorities and I'll, I'll talk about what my priorities are. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Jobs and jobs. That's what we're talking about, a National Integrity Commission. You are asking Australians to trust you Mm. and you haven't delivered on a promise Mm. about trust, about integrity. 
So well, how can Australians I, I trust you when with you it's a broken promise, isn't it? No, it's not. But you promised you would establish one in the last term you have not. That's a broken promise. Scott Morrison flagged he would set up a corruption watchdog for the federal parliament in this press conference in December 2018. Uh, on the establishment of a Commonwealth Integrity Commission, this is an exercise that we have been, uh, we embarked on in January of this year. We haven't kicked up a lot of dust about this because we've just been working on it. He put forward a draft exposure bill and called for submissions from the public, but it was widely panned by legal experts as ineffective. Scott Morrison is blaming the opposition for stopping it going further. We put forward our proposal in detailed legislation and it has not been supported by the Labor Party. Former ICAC Assistant Commissioner for New South Wales, Anthony Wheely QC, says the Coalition's proposed model for a corruption watchdog would barely be able to investigate corruption at all. The government's model is the weakest by far of all the models that either exist or are proposed in Australia. First of all, the definition of corrupt conduct is very narrow. It's just a list of specific criminal offences. If the government's definition of corrupt conduct was uh, adopted, we couldn't have an examination of the sports rort scandal or the car park rort scandal. There are no provision for whistleblowers to make complaints and there would be no public hearings ever and no reports of a public nature. And he doesn't buy Scott Morrison's argument that he needs Labor's support before he introduces the legislation. With respect, that is really an unconvincing argument. Is that an argument that ever, has ever worked before? Governments often introduce bills. No, they always introduce par- uh, matters into Parliament. There's a debate, there's speeches, there's discussion, there's often amendments, and then the bill's either passed or rejected. The Prime Minister has been clear he doesn't like the New South Wales version of an integrity commission. Investigations there have resulted in the resignation of three Liberal premiers, most recently Gladys Berejiklian. I've lived with that in New South Wales. I've seen the lives destroyed by a commission such as that which becomes a kangaroo court. Gladys Berejiklian is now a managing director at Optus, while an investigation continues into whether she failed to report corrupt conduct because of her secret relationship with another MP. An Integrity Commission bill put forward by independent member for Indi, Helen Haynes, also failed to get up last year. Anthony Wheely QC says that bill and what Labor has proposed would allow for public hearings and reporting and has a wider definition of corruption. Labor leader Anthony Albanese thinks the Morrison government is scared of what an Integrity Commission would find. The reason why this Prime Minister doesn't want an anti-corruption commission is sitting on his front bench. Meanwhile, while campaigning in Cessnock in regional New South Wales, Anthony Albanese was also asked about his refugee policy, giving this answer. Uh, We'll turn boats back. Turning boats back means that you don't need offshore detention. The coalition seized on the soundbite as a backflip on policy, claiming it would encourage people smugglers. Later, the Labor camp clarified its position, reiterating support for offshore detention centres. Isabel Rowe reporting. You're listening to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, another person in the National Disability Insurance Scheme left distraught by an apparent cut to their plan. But as you'll hear, there's a last-minute reprieve. (laughs) 
Ukraine appears to have dealt a big blow to Russia by taking out a warship in its Black Sea fleet. Russia says the ship was seriously damaged by what appears to be a strike by Ukrainian cruise missiles. The US and the European Union are pledging more assistance to Ukraine to help resist the Russian invasion. But as Russia continues to amass troops in Ukraine's east, Ukraine's military leaders say they need the help immediately. Rachel Mealy reports. In some parts of Ukraine, residents are returning to their homes to inspect the damage after shelling and airstrikes. In the city of Chernihiv, this woman picks through what remains of her destroyed home with her grandson. I have nothing to do but to look and to cry. So much work has been wasted, she says. We've been building this house for 38 years and it ended this way. In the east of the country, the threat is intensifying. Russian troops are gathering in large numbers where a major assault appears imminent. US President Joe Biden spoke to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky last night in a lengthy phone call where he pledged extra support, including artillery systems, artillery rounds and armoured personnel carriers. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says the US wants the new package to help with the coming assault. All of them are designed to help Ukraine, as we talked about, help Ukraine in the fight that they are in right now and uh, uh, the fight that they will be in. Uh, in in coming days and weeks uh, in the eastern part of the country. He says some of the new military equipment the US is providing will require training for Ukrainian forces. The systems that will probably require some additional training for Ukrainian forces are the the howitzers, uh, the uh, TPQ-36 counter-artillery radar. Not a very difficult system to operate, but it's not one that they have in their inventory. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is trying to sound confident as the attack on the east looms. All this frantic activity of occupiers shows, first of all, their lack of confidence, he says. It shows that Russian military doubt their ability to break us, break Ukraine. Ukrainian forces have had an important strategic victory. A Russian warship has been seriously damaged in an airstrike in the Black Sea. Will Partlett is an associate professor at the University of Melbourne Law School. Well, I mean, this warship was 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 the flagship of the of the Russian Navy in that region. So it's a pretty significant development to the point where if you if you look at Russian media itself, they're already trying to spin alternate stories that there was, you know, a kind of mistaken accidental explosion on the ship and so forth. So it's it's significant. I mean, it's also embarrassing for a, a Russian military that was, you know, being everyone thought was really, really strong, but has shown that it has significant structural weaknesses. Um, and that, you know, and it also shows again how effective the Ukrainian uh, counter response has been. But Professor Partlett says even though Ukrainian forces have been successful in weakening the Russian attack so far, the assault on the east of the country will be a test. Some have evacuated, though it's, it's clear that there's still civilians there. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's obviously still civilians in Mariupol, which is going to be one of the key areas that Russia really wants to get full control of that city. So I, and, and similarly, in the Donetsk and Lugansk area, there are, are cities that are 
you know, the many civilians have left, but some are unable to leave. So I fear that, you know, that it's going to be really, really, um, you know, kind of horrific kind of scenes that we're going to see. The International Criminal Court is gathering more and more evidence of war crimes and atrocities committed by Russian forces. The ICC's chief prosecutor, Karim Khan, has been in Bucha, north of Kyiv. He's described the country as a crime scene. Rachel Mealy reporting. On PM, we've been highlighting the challenges faced by people on the National Disability Insurance Scheme who've had their funding cut. Tonight, we hear from a 58-year-old Victorian woman who had NDIS funding approved so she could move out of an aged care facility and into her own flat. But just weeks away from moving into an ideal place, the National Disability Insurance Agency got in touch, saying there'd been a change and she'd need to share a unit instead. But as as you'll hear in Rhett Burney's story, it seems media inquiries have prompted a last-minute turnaround. Jane Newbecker was just 22 and travelling around America when she was hit by a car. The accident in 1986 left her paralysed and with brain damage. Cross the road after seeing Crocodile Dundee and a car driven by a young 16-year-old girl with her friends Run to me. Jane was flown to Melbourne and has needed help from disability support workers ever since. At age 50, she reluctantly moved into an aged care home as she needed more support. I really have not liked where I have lived. You don't choose what you like to eat and it's what's put in front of you. What is it like being a young person in an aged care home? It's not nice. Just have to make friends with people that are dumped there and, and people that you just don't have anything in common with. That was all set to change for the better, though. In November last year, the National Disability Insurance Agency approved funding for Jane to move into a one-bedroom specialist disability unit. Instead of living in a single room in aged care, she'd have her own kitchen, bathroom, lounge and yard and, with her support workers, freedom to choose what she wanted to eat and drink and where she wanted to go. I was looking forward to having my own garden, being able to invite my friends around. Then, without providing a reason, the National Disability Insurance Agency cut Jane's funding by more than $30,000 and told her she was no longer eligible for the one-bedroom unit. Instead, she'd need to move into a two-bedroom unit shared with another person with disability. Dr Bronwyn Morecambe is from the Young People in Nursing Homes National Alliance. So we've worked really hard with Jane to prepare so that she can successfully move to the community and enjoy her life there. Now that's been taken away, she's devastated by it. She's joined the local library. She goes there every a couple of times a week. She's asked to volunteer there. All of that has come to a grinding halt and it has just been devastating for her. More than 3,600 Australians with disability aged between 18 and 65 are living in aged care. In 2019, and in response to the Aged Care Royal Commission, the federal government committed to a strategy to end the practice by 2025. Bronwyn Morecambe says Jane Newbecker's case 
flies in the face of that. We don't have anywhere else for Jane to move to at the moment. So she she is now stuck in aged care when she's done all of this work to make this move and it's come to absolutely nothing at the last moment. It's reprehensible. But there's new hope for Jane Newbecker. It looks like she's getting funding for the one-bedroom unit after all. After asking about the case, PM has received a statement from the National Disability Insurance Agency. It says an administrative error led to Ms Newbecker's case being incorrectly changed and the NDIA apologises for any distress caused. It goes on to say the NDIA is contacting Ms Newbecker to let her know the original decision for a one-bedroom apartment has been approved. Jane's story is the latest in a series of cases covered by PM where NDIS recipients have had their funding cut. Last week, we heard from Janet Terod. Her daughter Haley is severely intellectually and physically disabled. After receiving NDIS funding for one-on-one care for several years, the agency advised her of an upcoming cut to her funding. I feel absolutely absolutely as if I'm failing on Hayley's behalf because if I don't fight for her, who will? Janet Terode is appealing the cuts to her daughter's NDIS funding in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, or AAT. In the current financial year, the number of appeals have almost doubled to more than 4,100. PM has asked the National Disability Insurance Agency CEO Martin Hoffman for an interview several times, but he's always declined. Red Burney reporting. Well, if you're going to be flying somewhere this Easter, chances are you'll be queuing for a while to check in and get through security. Airlines say the delays are due to a worker shortage caused by COVID, but unions claim it's the result of staff cuts. So which is it and how long will the delays last? Matt Bamford has this report. The rush is on for the Easter weekend escape, but those taking to the air have hit a hurdle. Overwhelming, literally overwhelming, at this hour of the morning. And we're not flying out till quarter past one. Queues started at Sydney Airport from 4am, eventually snaking for hundreds of metres with passengers spilling out of terminals. Some 82,000 people have been passing through its domestic terminals today, the busiest 24-hour period in over two years. We were here early... Because we know what the situation is all about. So it's sad, but the best thing, the line is moving and we are going. There were similar scenes in Melbourne. Expected this school holidays. Yeah, we've two hours ahead of time, so we, we picked up on all the, uh, all the news saying we need to be here earlier. So. For those who've managed to get on a flight in recent days, there's been other problems. David Collard is still waiting for his bags. Flew in from Brisbane on Monday morning, uh, arrived into Perth at 10am and apparently about 80 bags didn't get on the plane since found out they had short-staffed or system error or something caused it. It's been years since air travel was anything close to normal and it's clear there's some way to go. Airlines and airports have blamed the Easter chaos on staff shortages due to COVID. Sydney Airport CEO Jeff Colbert even apologised in advance. But Michael Kane from the Transport Workers Union says staff cuts are to blame. We have a very low base of workers and of course that's the underlying reason here that we're seeing these staff shortages that are leading to this kind of uh, day-on-day catastrophic 
scenes at our airport. In 2021, Qantas outsourced more than 2,000 ground crew jobs, mostly to private company Swissport. Mr Kane says those workers are needed now more than ever. Oh, look, there's no doubt that um, COVID has been an impact, but the fact is that these workforces were anemic. Those 2,000 workers are ready, willing and able to come back to work, but Qantas is not putting them back on, and now we're seeing this panicked response. Aviation expert Professor Greg Bamber says operators and the pandemic are partly to blame. It's a bit of both. COVID has really exacerbated staffing shortages. Many people have lost their jobs. Some have come back. Some haven't been invited back. Some have chosen not to come back because they've seen that the pay and working conditions are not as good as they could be. He says privatisation has also played a role. The airports used to be seen as a public service, like railway stations. Now they've been privatised and they tend to want to put profits ahead of people because they're seeking to maximise the return on the investment that their shareholders have made, which involves cost minimisation. Staff are being rushed back to work. The New South Wales government has relaxed close contact rules for airport workers. And it's hoped a drop in passenger numbers will ease the pressure in the coming days. But Greg Bamber says there are more systemic issues that need to be fixed. It depends to what extent the airlines and the airports are going to invest in recruiting and training more people rather than simply running with the fewest number of people that they can generally get away with. I'd like to see both the airports and the airlines putting people ahead of profits and trying to maximise the service that they give to people. Aviation expert Professor Greg Bamber ending that report from Matt Bamford and Isabel Masali. And that's PM for this Thursday and, in fact, for the week. PM's producer is David Cody, technical production by Scott Johnston and David Sargent. I'm Samantha Donovan. We'll be back with PM on Monday evening. Linda Mottram's podcast this week is now available a little earlier than usual because of Easter. Three big interviews there on politics, the war in Ukraine and Shanghai. COVID lockdown. Hi, I'm Sam Pawley from the ABC News Daily Podcast. This week, airports across the country have been thrown into chaos amid the Easter holiday rush, in part because of staff shortages due to COVID-19 close contact isolation rules. Today, epidemiologist Tony Blakely on whether the rules are really still necessary. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.